0: Crooked coffee is all about making your life a little less chaotic. So we just launched three limited edition holiday boxes to make gift giving easy. Each box is filled with full-sized bags of delicious medium and dark roast coffee, plus a fun activity that isn't scrolling through Twitter. Pick from three different boxes for three types of people. The extremely online box with witty magnetic poetry for your fridge. The craft lovers box with a learn to crochet kit inside and the home baker box, with the insta-famous Apple Cider Donut Kit from Farm Steady that's so popular it's almost always out of stock. Plus, this holiday season, every order from Crooked Coffee will support Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund to make sure every voice can be heard in the face of unprecedented voter suppression. There's a limited quantity, so head to crooked.com coffee to shop before we sell out. The Crooked Store just launched a bunch of new merch inspired by your favorite Crooked Media podcasts, reminding you to unplug, reconnect, and get festive. New items include a log-off ornament and a Nog Save America mug. Every order from the Crooked Store will support Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund to make sure every voice can be heard in the face of unprecedented voter suppression. Head to crooked.com store to check out the new arrivals now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boyler. We know Republicans biffed the midterms. We talked about all of that and the significance of it with Jamel Bowie last week. Uh, But they only really lost by the weird rules of politics and, and I guess golf, where questions of win or lose are answered relative to expectations. In a purely objective sense, ignoring everything that happened before November 8th, The midterms were basically a tie. Democrats won big in some places, Republicans in others. Democrats will keep and maybe grow their Senate majority, but, and it's a big but, Republicans won control of the House. Or at least by the time you listen to this, they will probably have won control of the House. So what does that mean as far as we can see? One of the only things we can say for certain is it means that Biden's policy agenda is dead, or at least on hold. During the campaign, he'd promise, wisely I thought, though maybe not quite repetitively enough, that if Democrats swept the election, he'd send a bill to codify Roe versus Wade to Congress, and then he'd sign it in January 2023. That kind of thing is just not going to happen once there's a Republican speaker. Then there's the basic stewardship of the House, which is probably not going to be very good— Even before Donald Trump became the chaos agent in charge of the Republican Party, GOP congressional leadership was just famously, notoriously terrible at whipping votes. So, the other thing I think we can say pretty confidently is that we're in for some wild flailing about and just theatrical incompetence. But beyond that, things get pretty murky. And I don't just mean like Republicans have been cagey about their policy agenda and may not have the votes to pass bills. I mean, like, who is going to be the Republican speaker? Is there a House Republican who can get 218 votes for the job? The majority is going to be much, much smaller than Republicans hoped it would be, and that's kind of blown up their plans such as they were. I think the idea was Republicans thought they'd have a big house majority and maybe even Senate control, and they'd use it to sort of bully Joe Biden, try to extort some policy concessions out of him here or there, and more or less do what Donald Trump demanded of them. And Donald Trump thought the pendulum swing of elections and inflation would deliver Republicans a big midterm victory that he'd get to take credit for, and it would cement his status as the party's overlord. But instead, the statewide candidates most identified with Trump got wiped out basically everywhere, and he rushed to announce his candidacy for president in the shadow of that enormous failure. And down at Mar-a-Lago, none of his allies in Congress even bothered to attend. So even if Republicans decide once again to shrug off Trump's failures and return to his heel— If they attempt to do whatever he wants, I think they're going to humiliate themselves or do serious damage to the country, or possibly both. In a weird way, between their bad election night and the growing realization within the party that Trump is making their party non-viable, a lot will turn on who the party leaders are and what their basic character is. And unfortunately for us, what's left of the national GOP is a group of people who were selected for their willingness to set aside right and wrong in order to make Donald Trump happy. The writer Mark Leibovich has written a book about this called Thank You for Your Servitude. It's situated in Trump's Washington, specifically at his extremely seedy hotel rife with corruption. But it's really more like a time capsule of a bunch of mortifying episodes from 2016 through 2020 that you may have forgotten because so many other more mortifying episodes overtook them. Along the way, though, I think Mark got to know just how deep that servitude runs in each of the people who will soon gain power in Congress. And so he can help us understand how those people might grapple with these dilemmas, which presumably they didn't anticipate, and what will happen when their decisions come face-to-face with reality. Mark, welcome to Positively Dreadful. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So what surprised you most about the election itself, uh, the results, and what has surprised you most since the general outcome became clear?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I I am surprised by the results. I I had, um, I'm not going to say I had an inkling that this was going to happen, but I had a tiny inkling that no, I, I get very suspicious of certainty and there was a whole lot of certainty out there that, uh, you know, the red wave is is inevitable, and so forth. And, you know, that's usually a sign that, you know, it's not going to go that way. Um, Look, I mean, I'm I'm obviously, as someone who wrote a book that, that sort of, I think, deconstructed a lot of some of the most shameless and horrific and cowardly behavior, you know, you can imagine from many of the putative leaders of the Republican Party, I mean, my biggest fear was that the red wave was going to go on as advertised and it would vindicate all of, you know, the sycophantic behavior that Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and uh, all of them have have sort of engaged in. I mean, look, I was surprised by like the whole narrative of the thing. I, I think a repudiation like this is really good for the country. I think theoretically it could be good for the Republican Party. I mean, not in the short term, but it could be exactly the kind of clear-cited, you know, message or or sort of clear message that they that they probably needed. Ultimately, though, I think the sort of low character of a lot of the characters at the center of this story, both in the book, but also now going forward as they try to lead the party, you know, through this period, is such that Donald Trump, I think, if he wants, will continue to be able to impose his will on it, you know, to a degree that results in a lot of the same chaos and ultimately weakness to the Republican Party.
0: Yeah, I want to get to that in a second, like just how his presence in the party combined with this very small majority that they're likely to have in the House are going to interact. But before we get there, I wondered if you have any sense of whether, Republicans were surprised by the result. Yeah. Like they're definitely acting like they were. But at the same time, I I feel like in hindsight, they were pretty clearly intentionally flooding the polling averages with these uh propaganda polls, basically, right. meant to make them look like they had a margin large enough that that would suggest a wave. Right. Why would they be doing that unless they were trying to will it into existence? Right.
1: I mean, you could argue that either they saw writing on the wall or this is just good politics, right? I mean, because, you know, you can't just manipulate polling. You can't just throw polls into a polling average. I mean, someone has to aggregate the polling average. So it's sort of on the media to to decide, you know, what's going to be part of their act. So a lot of it, I think, is on the media also. But ultimately, yes, I mean, I think they did seem... You know, very, very happy to go with the it's inevitable narrative, which frankly doesn't work. Um, I mean, maybe it works as an individual candidate, like, well, you know, Ron DeSantis is inevitable. So maybe we'll just hop on that train and write him a check or something like that. But for like a party-wide effort, it tends not to work that way. So maybe, although my experience, at least in talking to people in the last few days, is that Republicans are genuinely shocked by this. Uh, they I mean everyone sort of accuses democrats and liberals of of operating in echo chambers which you know i think is fair in many cases but i think republicans are are more guilty of it in some ways and um you know i i would be a hundred percent stunned if i watched fox and newsmax all day and then all of a sudden this happens i think i'm less right because i avail myself of you know a broader range of media
0: Yeah, I guess it depends on, like, which Republican. Like, your Fox News-watching uncle is definitely shocked. Uh, Mitch McConnell, I don't know. I mean, Mitch McConnell, I'm guessing, tries to get good data. And, um, you know, he seemed earlier on in the cycle, at least, to be resigned to losing. Um, And so it made me wonder, like, okay, are – are they are they really just mostly trying to will a good election outcome into the exi- into existence when their when their data is telling them it's not coming? Yeah, because of you know, because of how they conduct themselves under the thumb of Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean I was struck yesterday by you know he had a press conference. Um, I mean, I don't know when this is going to air, but he Mitch McConnell uh, about a week after the midterms did a press conference and he seemed really pissed. He seemed you know much more unfiltered than he usually is um he he looked just done with the rick scotts and the ted cruises of the world and just seemed extremely contemptuous of the position he found himself in and um you know to which i say you know well he has only himself to blame but that's another conversation but no you're <laughs> right i mean I, I think um i think part of him i mean mcconnell's smart enough to know that This could have happened. I don't think he was as stunned as everyone else was, but I think he he saw, he sees this pretty clearly.
0: So you mentioned the people that you talked to seem surprised. Um, Without asking you to spoil any stories um, you might have on the horizon, have you circled back to or heard from any of the characters in the book since the election? And like, what is beyond, oh, this sucks, we lost, I wasn't expecting it. Like, What's their general takeaway been?
1: yeah i mean i i haven't had i mean i've had i've talked had a few conversations the general takeaway is sort of what you see on tv which is i mean there aren't a lot of people trying to spin the results i mean at first trump himself was i mean he was like oh there's a great victory and so forth and i suspect you know when there's an official call for like Republican, when republicans like clinch the house which presumably they will you know in the next day or so you know when the last of these races start being called in their favor know i'm sure there'll be kind of a fake victory lap or like yay you know good for us but um no i mean i think they're stunned and and, you know mccarthy knows he's in a jam now he's in a major major jam now um i think he also knew i mean he's smart enough he's not that smart but i think (laughs) he he is politically uh, astute enough to know that even in the best of circumstances if they had won 25 even 30 seats he would have had a hard time just as speaker he would have been led around by the nose by by trump by the freedom caucus by marjorie taylor green and so forth i think that that's still just as true as it was but it's just more so and there's just even the tightrope got even thinner for him so um i don't know look i just i just have a overwhelming sense of dread i mean i think they're all focused enough and bought in enough so that i think McCarthy is disciplined in that he just, he's probably just on the phone with donors, with his members, just shoring up, you know, just getting as close to 218 as he can. And, you know, I don't think he's going to get there, but he's, I mean, without some kind of deal making. So that's when it becomes fascinating.
0: Yeah. I I was going to ask you, and I I will still ask you, if there was any kind of backup plan as far as, you know, because I think the idea was when uh, a majority big enough that he'd have some breathing room to, Cobbled together 218 yep. votes, not just for, for his speakership, but for whatever else they wanted to do, uh, and th- and then run sort of brute force political plays right. um, against Democrats. And I, I mean, I'm not sure that's going to be possible, but I don't know what he's going to want to do instead.
1: Yeah, I don't. I mean, look, McCarthy. My my sense of McCarthy is he just wants to get his name on the door. Like, even if it lasts for like two months, um, he'll like have a he'll have a little selfie he can take of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And he'll be able to refer, dine out the entire rest of his life as a former Speaker of the House. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I think my sense was he was delusional. Not I mean, not delusional. He he really was. He's, he's, he had a pretty set vision of, of how, you know, how great things were going to look the day after the election. And. I don't think he had a plan B. I don't think Republicans have a plan B. I think if they're if not McCarthy, I'd assume the most likely speaker uh, to, or you know most acceptable alternative would be Scalise. But I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I, unless someone else comes forward, be, but there's no Paul Ryan in the bunch. There's no consensus uh, choice.
0: If the idea was that they'd win uh, by a healthy margin, Donald Trump would sort of be like the the proxy speaker. Kind right. of giving marching orders to McCarthy to carry out. Um, one, I mean, it interacts in weird ways, I think, right? Because I don't know if McCarthy has the votes to do that anymore. But at the same time, I think the whole thing was sort of premised on Trump would come out looking super victorious too if Republicans won. Yep. And now Trump comes out seeming very weak, actually. Um, and does it, I mean, McCarthy would have to at some point, I guess, take some sort of affirmative steps away from Trump and, and be willing to do things that Trump didn't want him to do, um, but... There's no way he can do that.
1: He can't. He just can't. I mean, here's the thing. You say Trump is weak. He is. He's weakened, that's for sure. But he's as all-powerful with among the 200 and, you know, 20 or so Republicans in the House as he was last week because not a single one of them is going to stand up to him right i mean is mccarthy going to say mr trump i'm sorry we're not going to impeach president biden 10 different times because the american people will hate that i don't think i have the votes for it um you know it's just so i
0: can- don't i don't know i mean like i i think you know a week and a half ago i would have said even if even if even if it only comes up fifteen or twenty, you know they, they gain fifteen or twenty seats in the election. It's a narrower margin than we thought, but it's still something. I would have said, okay, I, they're just going to claim that they won a huge landslide, and and Trump will issue the marching orders, and McCarthy will follow them, and they will have enough votes to get it done. But now he's going to have these like random New York Republicans who have been anti-Trump. Right. Um, I like. I like. Trump can issue the order still, and McCarthy can feel like the safest bet is to just do what try to do what Donald Trump tells him to. But he, I mean, this is why I was saying during the intro that we're gonna. I think we're gonna see a bunch of embarrassing failures because if he does that, I think that there's some stuff he's not gonna. He's he's gonna put stuff on the floor and it's gonna. Could um, happen. absolutely. Yeah.
1: No. No. No question. I mean, it will be. Look, it'll be just delicious. I I think. Uh, You know, again, I I think it's kind of in some ways it's his dream come true because, you know, he's in a great position to be speaker, although uh, it's dicey as all hell. Um, And it's going to be it's going to be miserable. I think it's going to be miserable under the best of circumstances. But um, I don't know. We we will see. I mean, but there are I mean, I guarantee you, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, surprisingly, I thought, uh, endorsed mccarthy for speaker yeah, that- um obviously he promised her something um i don't know if trump was involved in this or something but um you know he still like didn't he, he still lost like 35 votes in the republicans so that's it's a lot so he's gonna I, I don't know how he does this especially if his margin ends up being you know six seven eight something like that i mean just not a lot to work with
0: Positively Dreadful is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to cook. You can learn how to play musical instruments. You can learn astronomy. You can learn geology. With over 180 classes from a range of world class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Masterclass is how I'll make sure my own holiday staycation this year doesn't get boring and doesn't end with me binge watching TV serials while scrolling on my phone. But I'm even more excited about giving it as a gift to people with more time on their hands than I have. Sorry to spoil the surprise, Dad. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, usually around 10 minutes long. You can explore at your own pace, and each class is supported by downloadable materials, class guides, recipes, or more. Sessions, a new product for Masterclass, allow for a deeper dive into the lessons over a month-long period. Sessions include projects to submit to a teaching assistant for feedback, as well as the opportunity to learn alongside a community of peers. Masterclass is available on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku. I highly recommend you check it out. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash PD today. That's masterclass.com slash PD. Terms apply. Good news, podcast fans. You can get America's number one late night show, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, as a podcast. The Late Show pod show with Stephen Colbert. That's right. You'll get everything you love about The Late Show from Stephen's monologue to scintillating interviews with newsmakers and celebrities delivered straight to your ears. You'll hear from guests like Anderson Cooper, Kerry Washington, and Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. You'll even discover some podcast-exclusive moments you won't see on TV, like extended interviews, throwback Colbert classics, and Stephen even takes a few audience questions. Listen to Late Show Pod with Stephen Colbert seven days a week, available wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. It's the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. BetterHelp offers all the benefits of in-person therapy, plus it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. So if you're listening, you know, we just went through a very stressful election, and it would have been nice going in if we had a tidy guidebook to tell us what to do and how things would turn out. BetterHelp Online Therapy can't predict election outcomes, but it can help you deal with the ubiquitous stresses of the modern world. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapists. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com dreadful. That's betterhelp.com slash dreadful. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that would lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the U.S. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned both feeling like this could be the sort of thing that finally sets the Republican Party on a better course than it's been on since Trump came around. You also mentioned feeling a sense of dread about things. I I, I wonder if you have any sense, of whether you think it's safer in terms of political and economic stability of the United States for Republicans to have this exceptionally weak toehold on power. Is that is that like a more stable situation than if they had a Bigger majority. Oh, for the United States? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, like, look, I mean,
1: in my view, this is good for America. I mean, I think, you know, I think a GOP controlled house that was willing to just sort of mess around with the debt ceiling is not good for the country. I mean, you know, call me biased. I don't know. I just, I don't want that. I imagine the global markets don't like that either. So, you know, in so much as this result is going to make that a lot harder to happen, I mean, I think that's really good for the country. So,
0: yeah. I guess I go back and forth on that because on the one hand, I agree, the big Republican majorities during Obama's presidency were very destabilizing. We had the debt ceiling hostage crisis and the government shutdown, and there were other smaller confrontations, and then there was this sort of chat roulette of pseudo-scandals. And I I think most times you'd say it's just harder for one party to shove the other around that – like that – Uh, unless they've just won a big victory. And that hasn't happened. I I asked the question, I guess, because, you know, a person like Kevin McCarthy, with his character, with no room to maneuver, with no apparent skill at the job, and just sort of plenary power to destroy the economy, if he just refuses to put a debt limit increase on the floor, I don't know, it, it strikes me as a kind of combustible state of affairs, like that it, it, yeah, I don't know the the I don't know what the right metaphor is catching a tiger by the tail or something like that where mm. a lot rests on him just being willing at the end of the day to do something responsible and we don't know if he'll if he yeah, has that in him.
1: Th- that that's that's true. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I still think though that it, it's if if McCarthy he just I think the less powerful he is the better. I mean, look if he's Speaker of the House with like a razor thin margin. That's pretty powerful. Uh, But it's still it's all relative. And um, I I mean, yeah, I I also it's just um, you don't I mean, the debt ceiling is first of all, it depends what they do in the lame duck. I mean, they actually could before Republicans even take control. I mean, they could codify, you know, they they could take care of this problem for a while. I, I have a feeling McCarthy, you know, privately would be very, very happy if that were the case. But, you know, again, as, as we've said, I mean, McCarthy is not a profile in courage here. So, you know, that, that itself is dangerous, but that would have been true whether he had a big margin or not. Do you
0: have any sense at all of what he or Republicans or Trump would even want out of a debt limit extortion play? Like what would they be holding it hostage for?
1: Um, you know, uh, all right. In exchange, we want X billion dollars in the next budget to the border wall or, Um, a promise that, uh, I don't know. I mean, look, they can, they can do any number of, of things, um, more seats on committees. I mean, you know, it can get pretty technical, but
0: yeah. So I, I asked because I feel like one big difference between 2011 and now, apart from the fact that Republicans didn't actually really win this election is that after John McCain lost and George W. Bush. Just left, and Republicans, including Kevin McCarthy, right, flushed both of them down the memory hole, and drew up this whole new identity for the party overnight, right? The, like the young guns, right. who were so very sincerely alarmed about deficits and spending, and and they were able to turn that into a, a whole basis for antagonizing Barack Obama and right. resisting the stimulus and resisting the Affordable Care Act. Um, so that when they took the House in 2011, they could adopt these sort of reckless, norm-busting tactics like holding the debt limit hostage. Right. Um, and, and then it would all look consistent, right? Like we've been saying for the first two years of Obama's presidency that there's too much spending, and so we need to do something drastic to to rein it in. Right. And and that's the play they ran. Um, they haven't been able to do anything like that since 2020 because they aren't the party's principal agenda center. Like Donald Trump is and apart right. from they also
1: haven't been in control since 2020. So
0: Right, right. I just right. mean that they, right. they weren't using the the you know, McCarthy and McConnell weren't using their positions as majority or as right. minority leaders to say the big problem with Joe Biden is x and if we get into power we'll stop it. Yeah, no, I I hear you. I mean, here
1: a couple of okay, so a couple of distinctions I'd draw. I mean, again, um you know, one. You know, John Boehner was was Speaker of the House. He wasn't, you know, minor so he, you know, he had more power basically at this point. But the other thing is, look, I mean, Obamacare was the issue that certainly swept Republicans into power in the House in 2010, right? Um, You know, at least these. This is a such an ancient history in the world of Republican politics, and that they actually still talked about policy. Okay, there was at least. A, you know, a pretense of, you know, Paul Ryan was supposedly a policy guy. I mean, you know, you can argue all you want about whether it was a pose or, or not. But, you know, fiscal responsibility, you know, hostility towards the stimulus, towards Obamacare. I mean, that's what they stood for. I mean, that's what they were holding up the debt ceiling over, you know, Obamacare related stuff. That's what Ted Cruz was trying to do, you know, in what was it, twenty. 15 or so like you know defund but i mean you know it didn't work but but that was at least there was a policy framework now you know now in addition to probably being in a weak weaker political position i don't even i mean i don't even know what they care about policy-wise that that is how bankrupt and bereft the republican party is now it's just yeah whatever trump wants so yeah the wall the wall he wants the wall let's like let's like Let's reawaken the wall as an issue, you know, I mean, you know, look at the Republican platform of 2020, whatever Donald wants. Right. So, I mean, that's I I literally legitimately could not think of a single issue that Republicans like would be associated with right now. I mean, fiscal responsibility, no, Trump blew that, Um, you know, they don't care about overturning Obama or, you know, killing Obamacare anymore um so i don't know i mean we're gonna secure the border whatever
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i i think secure the border is or, or, or border That's, wall yeah. is like a, a good guess as yeah. any and yeah. I, you know i i you know george w bush also didn't particularly care about deficits I, I think if trump had against um you know everything we know about him had disappeared after losing the election and you know a you, you end up with no insurrection which is uh, changes politics quite a lot on its own, but yeah. then Joe Biden comes in. You get some inflation. You get people like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell rerunning something like the Paul Ryan play, where they say this is because of Democrats out of control yeah. spending, and we're going to fix it. And then when they when they get power, they say, okay, to get to get inflation under control, we want cuts. We want another s- budget sequestration, or we want to to uh, you know cut entitlement spending in this way or whatever, and and see if they can get Democrats to fold. And I think the they haven't been able to articulate that uh, because Trump doesn't care about it, as you mentioned, but also because they, you know, if they were to try to get a groundswell of conservative momentum behind that kind of s- strategic play, Donald Trump would just blow it up, what right. he's been doing all along, you know, just telling lies about the election and well, he's sort of dragged the party along with him. And so it's, it's sort of like, they wouldn't know what they would want to demand in a right. debt ceiling standoff, but because of Trump, they can't demand yeah. it.
1: Right. I mean, the thing is, I mean, Republicans, if they wanted to, had a, they could tell a decent story, you know, with a policy ish framework. Right. I mean, it's not like they have great policy ideas or if they do, I don't know what they are, but um, you know, they could just say, look, Democratic spending is out of control, and that's why we have this inflation. We're going to be a check and balance on that. I mean, that's a great message if you're a Republican candidate running in a swing district. But instead, you know, it was so much given over to, to Trump, to election denialism, to the big lie,
0: and, and so forth. What do you think this tiny majority does if um, if Merrick Garland were to indict Donald Trump or, or Fannie Willis were to indict Donald Trump? I mean— I think
1: they're probably going to. I mean, whether whatever Garland does, I mean, I, I think they're they have all this mischief planned anyway. I mean, they're you know we're going to investigate the Justice Department. And we're going to like impeach Ali Majorcas and impeach Biden and impeach um, you know Tony Blinken. I mean, you know they had all this. Uh, not you know it's just they're going to investigate this that and the other thing. You know it's just that much harder to do right now. Um, you know I I'm of the belief that I mean everyone. I think the idea that, oh, well, if Merrick Garland or if the Department of Justice indicts Donald Trump, you know, the base will be incredibly activated. Uh, Everyone's going to go crazy. It's going to be, it'll backfire. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. I I think I didn't buy it before the election. I certainly don't buy it now. I think, you know, I think there will be a lot of Republicans sort of, you know, hemming and hawing about overreach. But I'm guessing that, you know, if Merrick Garland is going to indict Donald Trump, um and you know i have no idea you know what his thinking is obviously but if he were i mean it'll be for i mean it'll be by the book and it'll be for i assume you know a whole lot of reasons i don't so i don't know i i don't i don't think that activating or reactivating the base the the other the opposing base is is as much of a threat as as people might think it is
0: yeah i mean i guess my suspicion before tuesday was that if republicans won the election and then Trump got indicted by anybody. Well, I guess it would have to be a federal officer if Merrick Garland decided to to indict Donald Trump, that that Jim Jordan would just begin an impeachment proceeding against Merrick Garland, which he could still, I guess, do. But yeah, let him try. I mean, I think
1: I assume the White House. In fact, I know the White House is, you know, expects all this stuff to happen, whether they indict or not. Right. I mean, I think they have sort of baked into the equation that, you know, the House is going to try to investigate this, subpoena that, impeach X, Y, Z. They don't seem all that scared. I mean, except as a nuisance. I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think they seem pretty confident that they, you know, one can use a lot of the same playbook that Trump did, which is just to delay it or to just sort of stonewall as much as as they did, because I mean, believe me, Trump sort of wrote the book on that or, or certain rewrote the book on that. Um but you know, okay. Worst case scenario: Ali Mayorkas and Merrick Garland get impeached. Like, first of all, really? I mean, first of all, they're not going to be. I mean, it's not going to go much farther than that. I mean, it's it's just it's sort of seen as an It would be, I think, seen as a nuisance at best.
0: Does the plan that they had to to investigate this subpoena that does it even work in a in a twenty twenty three environment where they just didn't win the Senate? I mean, I guess. The yeah. implication behind the question is that is that if they're going to, if they think that they can use their house powers to uh, go ham on Joe Biden and the Biden administration, okay, but they didn't win the Senate, and so de- Democrats could say, well, like who can play at this game? It it doesn't really reap the same benefits that maybe they so so. Anticipated. Here's what I would
1: say. Okay, this is a weird analogy but because it's a podcast I'm going to make a weird analogy. <laughs> um so in the wildlife world um there are people I when you get to when you've been in, when you've been writing stories for as long as I have now I sound old I'm not that old but I've been around a little. I've written stories on everything and I used to I wrote a story on uh the staff at the the Santa Clara County California uh uh animal control office that was in charge basically of dealing with animals like you know people would come down from their people animals would come down from the hills they would deal with them like oh there's a dead raccoon on the middle of like you know you know i-50 or something and they deal with the dead raccoon. so i remember a guy i was interviewing said well we have a, a distinction there are nuisance animals and then there are threat animals okay and i guess a raccoon is in the category of nuisance animal, right? And, um, you know, it might be a threat if it has rabies or something, but that's getting too technical. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, I think the the, ha- the House, a the Republican-led House, especially one that is a little bit diseased, as the current one is, sort of, sort of put like the rabies-like thing going on here, um, has, uh, you know, they have the ability to be a, a threat animal you know, with the de- if the debt ceiling is involved. But I actually don't know if they will have that leverage with the numbers they have for their majority to have. But once you sort of get into like investigations, when you're sort of subpoenaing people, you're sort of making them schlep up to the hill, answer a bunch of questions from people that frankly, they're not that intimidated by because, you know, I mean, remember when Hillary Clinton went up and talked to the Benghazi committee for like, a million hours and like basically just ran circles around them and kind of made a lot of them look foolish. I mean, she kind of made the House Oversight Committee in that sense look like a nuisance animal. And I think my sense is the the Biden White House right now sees a lot of these sort of the specter of a lot of these investigations and subpoenas as like in the category of nuisance animals So I probably spent way too much verbiage in it. I've been losing my voice <laughs> way, you know, setting up this analogy, but. You know, I do think that's sort of the, the category of of sort of threat that they see this in. It's more of a nuisance animal. I, I'm,
0: I'm not going to. It.
1: You can edit this if you want.
0: I'm, I'm not going to beat the <laughs> dead nuisance animal with the whatever. But, uh, you know, the I agree that in the past when Republicans have controlled Congress and have y- used the subpoena power as sort of like a, a engine to feed Fox News storylines like sure. Benghazi or whatever else um, – You know, they end up uh, targeting intelligent people. You know, Hillary Clinton's smart and she knew what the reality was and what the Republicans were trying to present. Um, And so she was able to conduct herself well and sort of expose the people interrogating her as sort of frauds. But, you know, it didn't work out great in the end, right? Like it was that investigative process – That led to the discovery of the email server, which, you know, and- You don't welcome the nuisance animal. You do not welcome it. You would prefer not to deal with the nuisance,
1: because it can give you
0: rabies.
1: (laughs) There you go. And which becomes a threat animal. So, but yeah, but I hear you.
0: So I guess at that time, Republicans had both the House and the Senate. So it's not like Hillary Clinton's allies in the Senate could come to her rescue, either- with some sort of exonerating whatever, or by running some sort of parallel investigation against Donald Trump. Um, And I, you know, I think that that ended up being pretty fateful. The fact that Republicans had full congressional control in 2015 and 2016, and that Republicans were thinking, well, we'll just do that again. And maybe we'll turn up something. So a a little damning about Biden, and then we can run that play again. But if you if you don't have the Senate and Democrats are willing right. to fight fire with fire. Yeah.
1: So a Republican controlled Senate would be a threat animal to Democrats because yeah. every time Biden wanted to, you know, appoint a cabinet position or a judge or something, you know, you run right into the threat. And I mean, that's a real problem as, you know, Merrick Garland, the first iteration, the judge Merrick yeah. <laughs> the iteration can attest to. So.
0: Okay. So um, more specifically about the book, have you been back? to the now formerly trump hotel since it became the waldorf Astoria. i have not been back to the post
1: trump hotel i um you know i in a way i feel like i never should set foot in a from that building again as a non-trump hotel property but but just you know it, everyone of course must read the book immediately but you know the sort of light motif or the sort of recurring scene is the atrium bar of the trump hotel which is like the cheers for the maga set right like everybody <laughs> knows your name everyone you know that's where all the all the sort of payola happened all the lobbyists all the deals all the white house people would go to you know commiserate about you know what madness they were seeing every day and um so they sold it the the trump organization sold it to a waldorf so no i have not been back since it uh no longer was in trump hands
0: did you think that his decision to sell that lease was about anything other than just raw cash flow because i I find it kind of hard to imagine another Trump terms. God help us if if he doesn't have some sort of status-y property in the middle yeah, of the city. Right? Yeah, you Yeah,
1: probably buy one or something like that, or it would, <laughs> yeah, I mean, or something, some establishment that is run by a like a Trump supporter, right? I, I don't, you know, say like bar X, like a you know a cigar bar over by the White House is run by. You know, donor. I, I mean, I'm guessing it would be something like that, or you know, maybe he just buys the Holiday Inn Express on uh, <laughs> Avenue, like you know, a few blocks from the White House, or you know, and and then they rebrand it the the Trump Hotel for like t- temporary or something like that.
0: Okay, let me let me end with my most important question: How sure. much money do you think you spent on shrimp cocktails, oh, great food question. and drink at the
1: Trump I, Hotel over the years? I spent a lot of money at the Trump Hotel, um, but in the finest journalism tradition, I expensed a lot of it uh, <laughs> because I was working uh the New York Times, which is my employer during the bulk of my reporting for the book, you know I mean these are legitimate work conversations these are legitimate interviews I had there, you know, if I was there purely for personal benefit or you know, which was rare uh you know, I would of course pay but no, I probably paid I would probably say maybe a thousand dollars or something. It's not a cheap place. So I would usually get one drink and a shrimp cocktail. And the shrimp cocktail was overpriced. It was like 25,
0: 24, but it was very good. I have only been since it became the Waldorf and it's still very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. I asked mostly as a joke, but then you you yeah. mentioned the expensing thing. Did you and your editors at the time wrestle with what you do about the situation where the source of your subjects ultimately is also the owner of the establishment where you're like I remember oh. entry-level journalism training where they're like, Don't let your sources buy you stuff. Oh Not no. Every split every check or whatever. But at the end of the yeah. day, that money's going to Trump.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, that that's a weird situation. I mean, obviously, I mean I wasn't like, you know, Sean Spicer wasn't buying me drinks. I mean, I was right, no, no. <laughs> if God forbid, I was like at a table with Sean Spicer and he was drinking, I was paying. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it ever became an issue. I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, I think it was questionable that, like, I mean, we've never been in a situation like that before. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I guess I have to plead guilty to lining just a little bit of the <laughs> sort of dirty pockets of of the Trump organization by way of my diligent reporting. So um, yeah, and the other thing is, I wasn't alone. I mean, like, like, like so many reporters in Washington. I mean, it was like. It was, it was a really, I mean, you get a lot of work done. You could see, I mean, people, they would all go, they were hiding in plain sight, um, you know, Reince Priebus and like Kevin McCarthy was there and Lindsay was there and and Trump himself was always like kind of peacocking in to go to the BLT stake and mm-hmm. it was a bizarre scene. And, um, you know, left to my devices, I wouldn't be hanging out there. But uh, for for material and fodder for a book and or even a sitcom, uh, it was it was <laughs> glorious. I, I really, you know, I relished the reporting um,
0: laboratory in some ways. If he wins in 2024, maybe you should have the Atlantic buy you a membership at the Sterling Virginia oh, Golf Course. You know
1: what? <laughs> we will cross that bridge when we hopefully never get to it.
0: Well, I think we'll end it on that line uh, if we hopefully never get there. Uh, Mark Leibovich, thank you for spending so much uh, of your time talking to us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it.
0: Things aren't usually good and bad, positive and dreadful all at once. But in this case, I think they are. The GOP's weak performance in the midterms is certainly positive news, as Mark said, at at least relative to an alternative where the party was rewarded for insurrectionism and for promising to steal future elections. It's the sort of development that if Republicans had more honest feedback mechanisms and fewer grifters in their ranks, might lead to them cleaning house of enemies of democracy. Instead, as we were preparing this episode, House Minority Leader, possibly the next speaker, Kevin McCarthy, reportedly made a promise to Marjorie Taylor Greene. In exchange for her vote, he will sanction a Republican pseudo-investigation meant to turn January 6th insurrectionists into martyrs. On the one hand, you can see this as, as like a gift to Democrats. Marjorie Taylor Greene-style politics just hobbled Republicans in a national election, and now, to hold on to power, their leaders are constituting the whole party around it. But on another, it's a reminder that despite all their failures, Republicans did still win the House. And that means some essential functions of government will be at the mercy of weak and corrupt men like Kevin McCarthy, who will take marching orders from even bigger villains, who'd be happy to redress their grievances— by letting the whole country burn. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilius Fotopoulos.